Hi and welcome to the Crime Pod. I'm Sam and I'm Caitlin. Today I'm going to talk about a serial killer as I feel we haven't really done one of those in a while Um, and you know I'm missing them. So in media terms he was known as the Gay Slayer but his real name is Colin Ireland. So before I ask you, Caitlin, who you know who it is, I'd just like to say happy birthday from this week. <laughs> Thank you. So, so I was like, what does she want to done? say? Thank you. I know. <laughs> um, but anyway, did you actually know about Colin Ireland? No. I feel like it should ring a bell. Like, do you want to like, oh, do I know that? But mm-hmm. I'm honestly not too sure. Yeah, that's fair. To be honest, I didn't know much about him either, but there's no shock in that one. Yeah. Um, So I'll begin. Colin was born on the 16th of March 1954 in Dartford, Kent. He was raised by his mum and grandparents and he never knew his father as he walked away from his mum when she got pregnant at the age of 17 because he wanted nothing to do with it. Mm. Now, his mother worked as an assistant in a newsagent's and she got a really small wage so she found it increasingly difficult to support herself and also a newborn. So they went to live with her parents and her brother in the family home in Myrtle Road, Dartford. They lived there for five years until 1959, when Ireland's mother decided she needed some independence, which is completely fair enough. So they both moved to Birch Road in Gravesend. Now, during the next six years, they moved house nine times. So kind of like you, Caitlin. Um, That's me. Ireland's mum, she was unskilled and she had to rely on part-time and low-paid work. So she was desperate to provide for her son and give him a decent home like any other mum would and a stable upbringing, but she just constantly found herself unable to cope because nothing was going her way. Now, in 1960, they moved to Sidcup, Kent, and later that year to West Malling, also, apologies if I pronounce these things. Yeah, wrong. that's okay. Like, um, which was a camp of wooden huts for homeless women and children in Maidstone. Now, after only three months in this kind of, it was like a prison-ish, but it wasn't, obviously. Um, the accommodation, they both moved back to her parents' home. Now, by 1961, his mum had found a new partner. So the three of them moved to... Barnell Road in Dartford. So they lived there for the next three years. They got married and Ireland's surname was changed to his stepfather's name, which was Saker. He was an electrician and he treated Ireland well. He he wasn't a bad man at all, but he wasn't very responsible. He worked sporadically and, you know, the family was still financially unstable. Mm. Ireland found it hard to settle in at school because obviously they were moving so much and he attended six primary schools between the ages of five and ten. So he was always labelled the new boy and the odd one out and he was really thin and lanky so he got a lot of abuse and also bullying Mm. and so he just began to absent from school more and more and his mum allowed him to do that 
because he was having a miserable time. And when he did attend school, he'd always arrive late and he'd get punished by the cane because back in the day, that was a thing. Yep. Now, he this obviously meant that he didn't get a proper education and he was constantly battling his way through high school. And he became quite sad and lonely and withdrawn. And he was always what you described. He was on the parameter of the activity. He was never part of it. And the only reason when he chose a couple of friends was because they were unthreatening. Because And he was quite quiet and he was also immature for his age. And he was not athletic. He would never get chosen for any school sports team. Feel that. So, yeah, me too. I relate to that Yeah, please don't choose me, please. Now, in 1964, at the age of 10, Ireland and his parents were evicted from their home due to non-payment of rent. Now, Ireland mm. and his mum returned back to West Melling, which was that camp for homeless mothers and children. Mm-hmm. But because no men were allowed, his stepfather went to live with his own parents. Later that year, Ireland's mother discovered she was pregnant with her second child. So despite the obviously financial situation, she was determined to keep the baby. But in order to do so, she had to place Ireland in care with a foster family in in Kent. So apparently, though, um, Ireland said that the time there, it was very ordinary. You know, it wasn't a bad home that he got put into. That's good. And after the birth of her son, he had she had another son, Ireland's mother and stepfather moved to a house in West Kingsdown and brought Ireland to live with them there. Oh, that's so good. he wasn't in care for long. Now, not long after this, though, his stepdad walked out of the family and leaving them practically penniless again. He just oh. walked out on them. Now, in 1966, when Ireland was 12, his mother met and married another man. And this time, though, he refused to take the guy's surname. And so he changed it back to Ireland, which was his mother's maiden name. And the family moved to Clyde Street, Sheerness in Kent, where they stayed for the following five years. But thankfully, the marriage turned out to be a long and stable one. And he was apparently a loving man and he provided from his family and just gave them all what they thought they deserved. Lovely. However, whilst in Sheerness, Ireland was approached on four occasions by older men wanting to have sex with him. So the first one was when he was working in a fairground as a summer holiday job when he was 12. Imagine having to work when you're 12, like properly. I know. Uh-huh. And he was in a public I hate working toilet. at 26. I know. <laughs> it's not for me. Now, he was in a cubicle and a man in his late teens, early 20s, peered over the top of the wall down at Ireland. Um, he didn't say anything. It's not like he reported it. It was just, it was obviously disturbing. He was 12 years old. And another instance was he was watching a film at a local cinema. He was approached by a local optician wanting sexual favours. And another one was that there was a man working for a second-hand shop and he again wanted sexual favours. But Ireland didn't take anything on their advances. He never did anything with these guys. It was just, Mm. he must have felt like violated and he wouldn't tell anyone either. So it's not like he had an outlet. 
which he could just, you know, get off his chest. So this all built yeah. up. Now, I'll go to the crimes as well. At the age of 16, in 1960, yeah, I was like, in 19, yeah, in 1970, mm-hmm. Ireland committed his first crime. Now, his general unhappiness, because, well, he had no friends, he had not the, he wasn't enjoying his home life, and he wasn't enjoying school, he decided to run away to London. But sure. he needed money to get there, so he stole four pounds that he needed. Uh, but he was caught and issued with a fit person order, and he was sent to Ficton Manor School, which is in Kent, and it's a fee-paying school. Now, they only accepted boys who had both intelligence and emotional problems, so Ireland's fees were paid by the local county council as part of the case order. So this is kind of a reform school, you would say. Mm. Now, again, Ireland, in this place, he was teased, he was bullied, and because he was so frustrated at this and he wanted revenge, he set fire to one of the boys' belongings. However, a teacher managed to put the fire out and Ireland was sent away from the manor with a social worker and no charges were brought against him. But he immediately ran away to London once more. Now, this time he was homeless and he had no money, so he resorted to robbery. At the age of 17... He was caught and sentenced to spend time at Holsley Bay. It's a borstal, which, again, we've mentioned a few times with other serial killers in their stories. It's a British reform school for youth. Now, Ireland, obviously, he hated his time there and he managed to escape and run away. But it wasn't long before he got caught by the police and he had to serve the remainder of his sentence from 1971 to 1972 in a way stricter Borstal. So there was no escaping for him. Now he was released at the age of 18 and he met his first girlfriend, um, but there's nothing significant to tell you about that. Um, He was apparently just, he wasn't in a good mental state and he was unhappy. Now in December, 1975 at the age of 21, Ireland was found guilty of two counts of burglary. He stole a car and he damaged a property and was sentenced to 18 months in prison. He served 12 months in prison before being transferred to a different prison. Um, But I don't know why he was being transferred. Now, upon his release in November 1976, Ireland went to live in Swindon, where he's met his second girlfriend. She was a Black West Indian woman, five years his senior, and the mother of four children. Now, they lived together for a few months, and apparently they planned to get married, but nothing came of it. They broke up, and they did not get married. Oh. Which, I don't don't know what happened there. I couldn't find anything. Now, in 1977, Ireland was again found guilty of demanding with menace, which is kind of like a wee burglary, but you're kind of asking for it. And he was sentenced to a further 18 months in prison. Now, he kept repeating this, and he was also sentenced to two years imprisonment for robbery in 1980. He was also sentenced for two months for attempted deception in 1981, and six months for going equipped to cheat in 1985. 
So he was in and out of prison quite a lot. He was unskilled. He was an unskilled worker. And he took any kind of temporary work he could find. So he was a volunteer fireman. He was a restaurant chef. He volunteered at homeless shelter and he was a bouncer at various bars. And also, which I guess could be quite significant to this in the future, he was a bouncer at one of London's gay nightclubs in Soho. Okay. Now, during a stint as a chef in London that he met Virginia Zanet in 1981. And it was at a lecture on survivalism. Now, she was 36 which nine years his senior again, he seems to like older women, and she had a daughter of five. And she was confined to a wheelchair after a motor vehicle accident paralysed her at the age of 24. Now, they got married, they were happily married in 1982, and Ireland adored his wife and stepdaughter. They lived in an estate house in, in Holloway, and Ireland was known to the locals as the gentle giant. Now, this seems like life is going quite well for him, but all the stability and happiness, it clearly wasn't going to last because he ended up back in prison and he became increasingly aggressive. So the couple were divorced in 1987 because he admitted to having an affair with another woman. Now, in 1989, he met Janet Young and she was the landlady of the Globe Pub in Buckfast, which is in Devon. She had two children, aged 11 and 13, and she lived with them above the pub. Within a week of meeting, Ireland moved in with Young and the children, and within three months, they were married. So this was going quite fast. It was apparently quite smooth, but after only four months of marriage, Ireland took his wife and her children to his mother's house in Margate for a visit. But whilst there, he took his wife's car, withdrew money from their joint bank account and just disappeared. Oh, he just he just left them. So I'm guessing the life just was not for him. No. Now, by 1991, obviously his second marriage has failed. He moved to Southend-on-Sea in Essex, which is about is east of London. Now, here he worked at a shelter for the homeless because he was homeless himself. Now, he was apparently very well liked at the shelter and he just felt an empathy with the people because he could relate. They were kind of in the same situation. But by December 1992, some of the staff began making unfounded allegations against him, so he eventually resigned. Now, he was becoming so frustrated because he he just lacked direction in his life and he just was sick of having to, he always had to go for, well, what's classed as unskilled work. And he just felt like there's nothing happening here. So, in early 1993, at the age of 39, and after only kind of committing minor offences. Yeah, he was in and out of jail, but it was what you would class as minor offences, a wee bit of burglary here and there. He decided to make a New Year's resolution to become a serial killer. As you do. Not, you know, the usual ones. Oh, I'll go to the gym more. No, no. He wants to become a serial killer. 
Um, yep, he was fair fascinated. <laughs> yeah. He was fascinated by them and he spent so many hours studying them. And he was aware of geographic profiling that helped investigators locate the killer because mm-hmm. they usually commit crimes in a certain radius, which is about seven miles from where they live. So for this reason, he chose London as his murder, murder ground, deliberately misleading the police and keeping them far away from his South End on Sea home. So he's calculating all of this, you know. Now, the Colherne pub in Brompton Road, West London, had a reputation in the gay community as a place to easily find a partner for the night. So they would wear colour-coded handkerchiefs to indicate their sexual preferences and making crewing so easy to meet someone because there would be no misunderstandings or anything like that. So Ireland thought, this is fantastic. This is where I'm going to go. So he started going there on the 8th of March, 1993, and he was posing as a top, which is a dominant partner. So he was looking for ones that were submissive. Now, he met his first victim, 45-year-old Peter Walker. Now, Walker was a submissive partner, so he approached Ireland in the pub and the two left together and they headed off to Walker's apartment in Battersea. Walker willingly allowed Ireland to gag him with knotted condoms and bind him with cord to the four-poster bed for what he thought was some foreplay, but it turned out to be excessively violent. Now, Ireland actually came prepared because he had a murder kit that he put together. So it contained cord, a knife, a pair of gloves and a change of clothes. So this is all planned. Now, worse, once, obviously, call, um, Peter was helpless, he, Ireland used a dog lead to, and a belt, sorry, to administer vicious beating. And then at the height of his kill, I guess, he put a plastic bag over his head and suffocated him. Oh, God. Now, after... That after he killed um, his first victim, Ireland spent time cleaning the apartment and he removed any items that may have connected him to the crime. Now, it was also whilst looking through Walker's personal effects that he found out that he was Walker was HIV positive. So discovering this, Ireland was furious and he pushed a condom into his mouth and another one into his nostril. And then he also left two teddy bears in a sexual position on the bed next to Walker's dead body. Now, he didn't want to raise suspicion with the neighbours because he's just killed one. Um, He remained in his Walker's apartment until the following morning. So he then travelled home to Southend on public transport so that he could blend in with the early morning rush hour commute. And he disposed of his clothes, gloves and shoes from the crime scene by throwing them out of the train window within the boundaries of the London transport system. So everything was remaining in London. And apparently this is something that he did with all of his murders. Ireland, though, had locked Walker's dog into one of the bedrooms of the apartment before the murder because, well, I guess he didn't want him in the way. 
And later that day, he called the Samaritans to tell them where the dogs were in order for them to be released. And you think, well, this might have been in a a nice way, but clearly this was so that they, he could indirectly lead authorities to Walker's dead body. Now, because he wants to be a serial killer, he wants the fame, he wants everything like that. He doesn't just want to kill and not get caught. So the police discovered Walker's body, but they had little evidence with which to proceed. They assumed it was an SM sex game gone too far and they turned to the gay community. But they were not forthcoming because for two reasons. Firstly, the police obviously didn't have a good reputation with them because they often ignored gay-related abuse and crime. And secondly, the day before Walker's body was found, a new ruling had been passed, making S&M between consenting adults illegal. So no gay man wanted to come forward with information because they might have been prosecuted themselves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you can't blame them at all. Now, Ira decided he took a two-month break, but then he felt the need to kill again. So he returned back to the pub, and on the 28th of May, 1993, he went to search for his second victim. It was 37-year-old librarian Christopher Dunn, and he told Ireland that he liked to be dominated and invited him back to his flat in Wealdstone. After watching an SM video, Ireland told Dunn to go and get ready. He found Dunn in the bedroom, naked, except from a studded belt and a body harness. Making Dunn lie face down on the bed, Ireland tied his feet together and handcuffed him. Once again, he beat and tortured his victim, holding a lighter flame to Dunn's testicles before suffocating him to death by stuffing pieces of cloth into his mouth. So, Ireland, though, this time thought, I'm going to reimburse myself for all of the expenses these murders are causing me because he's unemployed and he is living on benefits. So he thinks these victims no. should reimburse him. So prior to the murder, he forced Dunn to hand over his bank card and PIN number. So after cleaning up the crime scene, he again stayed until he felt it was safe to leave. He got rid of the gloves and the shoes that he'd worn and he went to Dunn's bank and withdrew £200 from his account. Two days after the murder, a friend discovered Dunn's body on the 30th of May 1993. But once again, the police assumed a sex game gone wrong and did not immediately link the Dunn and Walker death. Now, why did they, you might not know the answer, but were they quite different? Is that why they didn't link them? No, I think that the reason was because, like, it's in the gay community and they don't understand it. And I think they had a, they just kind of ignored what was going on in a way. Like, oh, well, this is probably one of those sex games gone wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's totally just leave it there. So they didn't link them to begin with. Okay, yeah. I yeah. don't know if they were extremely different. They did obviously die of suffocation. But again, I guess back then it was hard to put the link together right away. And this yeah, is no, London sure. as well, so there must be tons going on. Yeah, definitely. Now, Thank you. Obviously, his thirst for murder, it was becoming stronger. 
and only six days after he had killed Dunn, he returned to the pub for his third victim. So on the 4th of June 1993, he met 35-year-old Perry Bradley III, and he was the son of a serving US congressman and himself, he was a businessman from Texas. So Ireland accompanied Bradley to his Kensington apartment and soon, soon suggested tying Bradley up as foreplay. Now Bradley was reluctant because he was not actually into S&M, but he relented when Ireland told him it was a necessary element in his own arousal. Ireland tied Bradley face down on the bed and placed a noose around his neck. He then demanded Bradley's card and pin, threatening to torture him with a cigarette lighter if he did not comply. So obviously frightened, Bradley offered to accompany Ireland to the cash point, but he refused. And therefore he gave him the bank and pin number. And Ireland then told him to go to sleep, which apparently he then did, because whilst he was asleep, Ireland killed him by slowly tightening the noose. And then he placed a doll on Bradley's dead body. Now, after conducting his usual search and clean up, he left the apartment the following morning with £100 he had found, and he went to the bank to withdraw a further £200 from Bradley's account. Once again, though, the police investigating the murder did not link it to the Dunn or Walker killings. Can I just now, butt in with something? Mm-hmm. See how he is going to the bank after he's killed the person, like the victims. Just, like, should they not have gave like a fake number? Do you think, or do you think he did a way of like checking the number out? Because like that's what I was just thinking. Like, if he is then given the number and then they're like getting murdered or whatever could they not just give like a fake number because is he going to the bank while they're still alive no he's going well when they're dead so i don't know why they maybe i guess yeah like they must have just been so scared yeah 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 but i was just thinking that i was like that's so interesting that like all of these bank cards are working so i'm kind of waiting for you to say that one of them is didn't work yeah and then he got caught or something like yeah that's what i'm waiting to be like yeah definitely one of them didn't work yeah well you never know stay tuned ireland was becoming frustrated at the failings of the police to link his first three murders and the lack of publicity they were getting which is wild can i just butt in like every other person is like hiding but he is wanting to be caught which i just find is so wild Mm -hmm. like you think he would eventually just hand himself in and be like, it was me. Yeah, I did it. Can you put me yep. on the newspaper, please? I made a New Year's resolution. Come on, guys. Because all he did was he sought fame. And only, but it's like the wrong type of fame. Why do you want this? Anyway. Um, yeah, it's a bit wild. Three days after his last murder, he decided to kill again. So on the 7th of June, 1993, he returned back to the pub where he met his fourth victim. 33-year-old Andrew Collier, and he worked as a warden at a sheltered housing complex. Now, they returned to Collier's Dalston flat, where he consented to being bound to the bed and handcuffed. Once again, Ireland demanded his victim bank card and pin, and when Collier refused, he strangled him with a noose. So this time, sadly, he still obviously was killed, but he never got the money. And in the search and the clean-up, the usual process, 
Ireland discover, discovered that Collier was HIV positive and hadn't told him. So this fury led him to burn various parts of his body and to strangle his cat. In an Aww. act of humiliation, he put a condom on Collier's penis and another on the cat's tail, positioning the cat so that its mouth was around Collier's penis and its tail was in Collier's mouth. So I don't know why he needs to do this just because he found out someone was HIV positive. It's awful. Exactly. And the person, remember. Not just the cat. (laughs) Sorry, yeah, no, I I know it's bad for the person. I know that. I'm not a horrible person. That was just, that's a bit traumatising for a cat. No, I know, I completely agree with you. (laughs) So Ireland took a mug that he had used and about £70 he had found in the flat and he left the next morning during rush hour. Police finally linked two of the murders, those of Walker and Collier, due to the similarities of the scenes as well as the strange use of condoms. They were beginning to suspect the work of a serial killer and had started to collate information on similar murders in the London area. They had also lifted a set of fingerprints from a window frame in Collier's flat that they later obviously discovered they would be Ireland's. Now on the 12th of June 1993, Ireland called the Kensington police claiming he had killed four men and he had to stop from killing again. He then called the Battersea police asking them if they were interested in the murder of Peter Walker and why they had stopped the investigation. He told them he would kill again as he had always dreamed of committing the perfect murder. Ireland's fifth and final victim was 41-year-old Maltese chef Emmanuel Viteri and he enjoyed dressing in leather. On the night of the 12th of June 1993, they met at the pub and they went via a series of trains back to his flat in Catford. Immediately upon arrival, Ireland bounced Spiteri to his bed, handcuffed him, put a noose around his neck and demanded his card and pin. Ireland then strangled him with the noose. He cleaned up, watched television until he felt it was safe to leave the following morning. Before leaving, however, he attempted to set fire to the flat. He hoped the whole block would catch fire, but in fact, the fire actually went out in Spiteri's bedroom, where it had had been started. So we didn't get no, far. No, no, sorry, yeah, it no. Was the biggest fail. I feel like fire. I shouldn't laugh, but like, how do you go around to be like, I'm going to burn this whole building down, and you don't actually manage to burn a room? No. <laughs> exactly. Like, try harder. Now. He had killed four times in the last 17 days and on the 13th of June 1993, Ireland rang the police telling them to look for a body at the scene of a fire in South London. Like, he acts like he's built the whole block down. Now, he also... I know this guy, (laughs) sorry, again, I'm like, I shouldn't laugh, but they're probably like, what fire? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Now, he also told them he had read many books on serial killers and that to reach a serial classification by the FBI, the killer had to have five victims. So he said he could now stop as he had killed five times, adding he just wanted to see if it could be done and would probably not do it again. Like, oh, I'll probably not do it again. 
thought. And on the 15th of June, 1993, Buteri's landlady called the police to report his death. Now, obviously a huge publicity campaign began with a press conference being called for the head of the police inquiry, which is Detective Superintendent Ken John, to report that five homosexual men had been murdered and were linked as a series, both pathologically and forensically. The murders of Walker and Collier had already been connected, but now Dunn, Bradley and Spateri were added to the list. John appealed to the gay community to be on the alert and to let friends know of their whereabouts if they were anywhere with a stranger. He speculated that the killer may have AIDS and that the possible motive for the murders was revenge. Now on the 17th of June 1993, John made a direct appeal via the media to the killer to give himself up saying he wanted to talk to him and offer him help. On the 19th of June, police handed out flyers at the London Gay Pride Festival, which was attended by about 50,000 people appealing for anyone with information about the murders to come forward. Psychologist Dr Mike Berry was approached by the police to draw up a profile of the killer. In it, he maintained that the killer was fueled by violent fantasies, but each murder was never as good as the fantasy and he therefore was driven to kill again. He also believed that the killer was not HIV positive and was not committing the murders as an act of revenge. Another psychologist, Dr Jonas Rappenport, agreed with this and he added that his belief that the killer was not himself homosexual but posing as a gay man in order to attract his victims. He was well organised, probably of large build and physically strong, which made him confident in his ability to overpower his victim. So the police gained further advice from criminal psychologists Paul Britton and Dick Walter, as well as ex-FBI agent and serial killer specialist Robert Resler, who had a book out. Also is, I'm sure, you know the Netflix series about um, serial killers? I can't remember oh, what yeah. it's called. There's, I mean, um, there's tons. Mindhunt, oh, Mindhunter. Oh, is that who that's about? Yeah, I'm sure it's about him. Oh, interesting. I also just wanted yeah. to put in there, do you know how they thought he was gay, but then people are saying, nah, I would say it comes across more that he's not gay and is actually, like, homophobic. Yes, I would That's say how, that's what I would have, like, I'm not a police officer, but I think if a case <laughs> like that came in, I would be thinking, well, this is only gay men that he's targeting. That, to me, looks like he's homophobic more than actually gay yeah I agree but then you've kind of got the Dennis Nilsson sort of folk who are just a bit weird yeah and Um, kills no no, I don't think Dennis Nilsson was gay no no you're thinking of Dammer yes probably (laughs) I'm thinking of someone one of the many killers out there sorry I'll get to the actual story. Now, on the 24th of June, 1993, the police issued a description of a man who had been seen with Spateri on the train from Charing Cross to Hither Green on the night in question. The description was of a white male, aged 30 to 40, over six feet tall, clean shaven, a full to fattish face, short dark brown hair, and dirty, discoloured teeth. Like, the teeth part, you know, what would 
if you were getting described that's the part you know what I mean yeah that would like hurt my feelings like imagine being like bad teeth and I'd like yeah yeah she's overweight with bad teeth I'd like all right (laughs) just leave me be (laughs) now from this they were able to produce an efit which is like an electronic facial identification thing from a computer now a week later though on the second you're just so technical (laughs) I know I'm just great at this thing (laughs) now on the 2nd of July 1993, police released a picture of the man with Spiteri taken on the train security camera. And he was actually very similar to the man that was created on the EFIT. So that's pretty cool. You could never do that, but you know what I mean. They appealed for him to come forward for questioning, confirming that the lines of communication were open. The following day, police received over 40 calls some of which were from men saying that they had seen or talked to the man in the Colhearn pub. On the 19th of July 1993, Ireland went to his solicitor in Southend-on-Sea and told him that he was with Spiteri on the night in question. He confirmed that it was he in the train security camera picture, but that he had not killed him. He claimed to have left him in his flat with another man. So this information, combined with the fingerprints Ireland had left on Collier's window ledge, was enough for him to be arrested and charged with Collier's murder on the 21st of July 1993. Two days later, he was charged with Spiteri's murder on the 23rd of July, and Ireland was sent to prison where he continued to maintain his innocence. You're like, God, you wanted to be caught. Why are you now saying you're innocent? Now, do you think he wants to do one of those massive big like he wants more do you know what I mean like he doesn't want to just be like yeah I'm guilty I've been caught he actually wants like a trial we'll see stay tuned because Sorry. no trial was held whilst oh, never mind. imprisoned he confessed on the 19th of August 1993 to the murders of five homosexual men like, it was a good, you know, you, I thought you could have been right, but, you know, you weren't. Now, showing no emotion, he gave police calculated descriptions of the killing. On the 20th of like August... I just don't get what he wanted. Like, I'm now confused, because I was expecting this to be, like, a huge trial of him getting to talk about it all. Now I'm like, what did you want? Yeah, I think he was confused as well. Like, he did not know what he wanted, to be honest. Yeah, he was smart and calculated, and he knew he wanted to become a serial killer, but... He didn't know what to do when he then became one. Yeah, he was like, oh no, should I? But anyway. Now, um, on the 20th of August at the Old Bailey in London, Ireland was charged with the murders of Walker, Dunn, Bradley, Collier and Spiteri and sentenced to life imprisonment for each of the five killings. And his name was put on the last published list of whole life tariff prisoners, meaning that he will stay in prison for the rest of his natural life. In Ireland, Which is probably what he wanted by the end. Yeah, I, I bet you he was loving it. He was like, this is my life. But I was like, why? You're just going to spend the rest of the time in jail just to get your name on a list. Now, Ireland's full and frank confession to all of his crimes, he emphasised four particular points. First, that he had not been under the influence of drugs or alcohol at the time of the murders. Secondly, 
that he was not gay or bisexual, even though he had once worked as a bouncer at a gay club in Soho. Thirdly, they had not undressed or engaged in any sexual activity with his victims and had gained no sexual thrill from the murders. And fourthly, that he had held no grudge against the gay community and that he had chosen gay men as his victims simply because they were easy targets. He claimed it was extreme right. male de deviancy that triggered his anger, which had begun with his brushes with paedophiles in his youth. He said his victims were deviants who just happened to be gay. He saw himself as ridding society of vermin and craved recognition as a superior person. The psychologist saw the strategic, the strategic placing of items related to childhood on the victim's body, because he had placed a teddy bear, the doll, and then I read that also the cat. And yeah, the cat, sorry, no. The cat, the cat doesn't count. In now, and it was apparently symbolic of Ireland's loss of innocence at a young age. Take the cat out of that, though. It's just not needed. Now, Colin Ireland died in Wakefield Prison on the 21st of February, 2012, at the age of 57. Now, apparently it was all natural, but there was an inquest, and because of yard exercises, he fell and he fractured his hip which he then was left in, you know, with a walker and things. And then a few Did he later... fall or was it a bit of an assisted fall? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because um, he was found face down in his cell and then some. it was apparently all connected. But you know what I mean? It's like you can't really... He was a big serial killer. Like, you shouldn't it really is give like much of it. done this before. Do you remember Teresa Riggi, who just kept yeah. getting attacked in prison? And that's the thing. There's people that will be in jail with him for like petty crimes, and then it's like, oh, I killed gay people, and they're like, okay, I'm gonna kill you. So yeah. that's the difficulty with it. Exactly. Um, but that was the story of Colin Ireland. That was really good. Another one that I didn't know much about, but I don't know if that's maybe because it wasn't as big in Scotland. That could be totally wrong. But... Yeah. No, I agree with you. Cause, but then again, it's like maybe he didn't get all the fame that he wanted because I think, we know American murders and serial killers. Well, that's what I was going to say. I think the term of like serial killer over here isn't as huge. But obviously in America, that's a huge thing. And, you know, they have museums with like serial killer shit in it. And like you can go on tours. Like I think we've spoken about it before, but... Dark History, Dark Tourist, sorry, the show on Netflix. Have you watched it? No, I've not seen it yet. It's just a guy that, like, he gives me, like, Louis through vibes. But he basically goes around America and does, like, dark kind of history tours. So, like, some of it's, like, tours generally about, like, things that have happened or, like, vampires and stuff. But anyway, some of them are actually, like, there's a tour you can go on and it's, like, the Dammer Tour. And then you can also oh. go on, like, a, um, oh, what's his name? The big... Oh, I'm going to get this totally wrong. Um, the was he the Mexican Latino guy, the big like gangster? I can't remember. Um, but like you can do tours of like you know like the JFK like murder tour, and you can do all these things. So like over there, it's like a totally like 
fame thing there's museums that open with all your stuff in it and people are obsessed blah blah, blah and it's more about them than the victim whereas over here we're quite good that it's mostly about the victims yeah yeah so you're like yeah. oh i actually can't remember his name but i remember the victim's name so we don't have that serial That's... killer kind of vibe you know yeah he chose the wrong place for his yeah. fame in a way and it's just crazy yeah pablo escobar <laughs> oh, okay it's pablo escobar there's like a tour <laughs> all about pablo escobar but like the village of like totally like done all the stuff being like yeah escobar and i'm like oh was he not a bit of a bad guy no but yeah sorry yeah <laughs> that's right well everyone go and watch that yeah we've... <laughs> maybe they'll sponsor us but dark yeah. tourist black history oh yes can we edit that bit no we're keeping that in <laughs> arsehole